0: Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Professor Lee Baumgartner is a freshwater fish ecologist. His research has covered fish passage and fish migration, dietary interactions among native fish species, the impact of human disturbance on aquatic ecosystems, I imagine it's probably not good, and more recently, the effectiveness of native fish docking. He's just returned from a trip to Laos working on the Mekong River, and we're catching up with Lee also about a year after his first podcast with us chatting about 2019's Menindee fish kill disaster. Lee, welcome to Charles Sturt Stories today.
1: Good to chat to you, Jess.
0: Lovely. Well, I have to say the Menindee fish kill disaster in early 2019 was horrendous, but 2020 seems to be intent on proving to me that things can only get worse. So I want to chat to you about uh, some of the things that have happened this year as well. But before we do that, you spoke with us last year about the Murray Darling and Menindi fish deaths, which I think we had a mix of blue-green algae, a lack of water flow, hot temps, which led to thousands of fish dying and um, some horrible, horrible photos of these fish that were just completely beyond repair and some waterways that were beyond repair. So I guess, can you give us a bit of an update on where everything is at in terms of our waterways and Menindi and the Murray Darling a year later?
1: Probably the best thing that's happened since we spoke 12 months ago is that a few weeks ago, the Darling started flowing again for the first time in three years and so come in three years that is yeah. amazing oh uh, it's pretty crazy we've it's it was a, a long time coming but when i say it's flowing again it's really trickling again it's not like a it's not like a historical darling and it's running a full bank flow with fish everywhere it really there was a bit of a a bit of a tropical depression which swung south from a but there's a rain depression from a cyclone, and it it filled up some of the northern tributaries, and, and the runoff went into the Darling, and it's reached the lower Darling. But unless there's follow-up rain, there's probably only enough water there to keep the Darling going for another ten to twelve months. And if there's no follow-up rain, it will just stop flowing again. That's the sad thing. But, so, but that that's one of the positives. That's one mm, of the positives is, is there is water right now. So,
0: so some water is better than none, but it's not. It, we haven't had the required sort of inflows of water that we need to offset potential damage again in the future. So, I mean, I guess there were government agencies set up or there were different things that were put in place by the government at the time to address what had happened. Do you think that they've done what they need to do? Well, there's
1: two, two independent panels. So I don't mean independent panels tried to get to the bottom of what had actually happened, and each of the panels came up with a series of recommendations. The government jumped in and made commitments to fund... Some of those recommendations to the tune of around about 70 million dollars and it was only a few weeks ago where we put an article in the conversation sort of giving a bit of a report card on how the how the government had performed in terms of that mm. and that scored really well on some areas and they hadn't scored so well on others but the, probably the most important thing was the establishment of a technical advisory group to put together a new native fish strategy which would step through well it's really about identifying all of the threats to native fish that have happened across the basin Mm -hmm. and the actions that are needed to try and mitigate things for native fish going forward so so it's a strategy it's out for public consultation right now the strategy tends to uh, it, it captures all of the previous known threats and some of the newer threats which are now listed Mm. But um, a strategy is only as good as its implementation, and so once once that's completed, it's public consultation, and everyone's happy with the content. That's when the rubber hits the road, and it's what can we do as a community, and what can we do as a group of of academics and government people and Indigenous groups that can actually hit the ground and start making things better for native fish.
0: And Lee, just as a layperson, and I mean, I love animals and I don't wish to see any of them die, and certainly not in the way Menindi did. But what what's the impact of losing all this fish? What does it really mean, I guess, for the environment and, and for us?
1: One of the things, well, there was an estimated 3 million fish died, mm. of which the majority of them were bony brim. Now, bony brim are like... Uh, how would I say, they're like zebras in Africa. Right? Mm. They're like food. Everyone uses bony brim for food. So murray cod eat them, golden perch eat them, anything that's big eats them. And then, and and they die every year in big numbers in winter. And so when they die, things like yabbies eat them and, and things on the bottom. So they they sort of form food for all different parts of the food chain. And so um, to see a lot of bony brim die was heartbreaking. But probably what most people resonated with was the death of the Murray Cod and the Golden mm. Perch and the Silver Perch, which was found there. Now, the um, the Murray Cod and the Golden Perch and Silver Perch are, are a lot harder to replace. Uh, a lot of the fish that died were 20 to 30 years old. And so they're big old breeding fish. They've lived through successive droughts. They've survived fishermen catching them. You know, these are big old smart fish that mm. have outsmarted most people for 30 years. And that's really hard to replace. So... The only way you can replace a 30-year-old fish that's died is with a baby fish that grows for 30 years. Mm. And so we say that this is a decadal problem. It's, to have so many fish die over a short period of time is going to take decades to replace. So one thing the government did do to try and offset that was they, they sent teams of people out to rescue some of the bigger fish that were stressed but hadn't quite died yet. And so those fish are now being held. There's a couple held in private hatcheries, some held at the Miranda Fisheries Centre, and they're being looked after. And I was lucky enough to see some of those fish earlier this year, and they're in fantastic condition. They've recovered, they're big, they're fat. They were eating chicken necks that were getting thrown into the river, and they were <laughs> in really good condition. Now the challenge becomes, well,
0: where do we put long? them? What do we do with them? Yeah.
1: Well, well, that's what, the first thing that was asked. I did a, I did an interview with. Sydney, TV, uh, Sydney radio a few weeks ago and they said, well, can we put the fish back now? I said, well, no, you can't really put them back now. It's, it's not quite the right time of year to put them back. Mm. And at the moment, we've only got 10 months' worth of water. So if we go and put the fish back now, we might have to go rescue them all again in 10 months' time when the water gets hot. So so what they're doing is, is looking after these fish. But you run the risk, the longer you hang on to a fish in a pond, the more domesticated it becomes. Mm. And so, so you don't want that to happen. The other thing is, When you breed from these fish, um, and which they're intending to do, you want to stock the fish back, but you want to stock those fish back during times of good water quality, not when the water quality might go bad again. So 10 months is not quite enough because Murray cod will spawn again in October and their babies will... will, the eggs will hatch early November and then they'll be ready to stock end of December. At that stage, if we've had no rain, the darling could stop again. And so... We're not out of the woods, not by a long shot, that's for sure.
0: Lee, I hope this is not a fatalistic question, but will we ever be out of the woods given our current the heat in our climate, I guess the, the climate change aspects of what's happening in the world at the moment?
1: One thing that, one thing that shocked me the most, it wasn't, was I wasn't prepared for it as part of the panel work, was when we actually plotted the long-term data on the climate, particularly out west, it's not a future climate change scenario anymore. It's a changed scenario. It's already changed. Mm-hmm. It's changed significantly from what we've seen. That There's a steady increase in the number of extreme events, and extreme events we classified as days per year over 40 degrees, so extreme temperature days. Mm-hmm. It, it's a straight line. It's a straight line almost at 45 degrees from 1940 to the current day. It's just increased and increased and increased. And we're now seeing the highest period on record where we're seeing days over forty degrees. And the biggest problem out west and out at Menindi, particularly in Menindi Lakes, which are big shallow lakes. I mean when you think of some of the lakes out there, they're sixteen kilometres across by twenty kilometers long. Now that's a big lake, mm. but it's mostly shallow. And the biggest problem there is evaporation. And mm. so if you've got hotter days and, and more extreme days in a year, the evaporation's gonna happen quicker, which means you've got less water to play with. So it, it might be being fatalistic, but being fatalistic can also be being realistic. Mm. And it means that there's an opportunity now to change the way you manage water. And one, the other thing that the panel found was that the rules for how Menindee Lakes are operated were drafted in 1960. Mm. And they haven't changed much since 1960. And if you go back and you go, well, what was significant that happened around that time? The 1956 floods were the biggest floods ever. It was one of the wettest periods on record. And the Darling and the Murray met up and it was some of the highest water levels ever. And so the Meningi operating rules were drafted just after one of the wettest periods on record. Now, if you were going to come up with some rules for how you manage water it would be better to do it after the driest period on record because then you're being really conservative with how you share water. But if you've done it after the wettest period on record and you assume that it's always going to be wet, there's going to be times where you over-allocate water and there's going to be competition for water. And so if you went the other way and said, how does the river look under the worst conditions and can we get our water-sharing rules right then, then during the wet times you've got no problems. It's it's really during drought and during the dry times where the problems happen. And so so the realistic side of things is now's the opportunity. Now that we've seen what happens when the river gets dry, we've seen what happens when there's no water. Can we rewrite our water sharing plans so that we make sure there's equitable use for farmers and equitable use for the environment when it's dry?
0: That's it. I think the key word there is equitable too because, you know, these things drafted in the 1960s are clearly not fit for purpose for where we are today, given not only the changes in climate, but in populations and agriculture and technology and the way that we interact with our environment, the way we live today. So, you know, they're, what, 60, 60 years out of date.
1: The, the population's grown 40% since the mid-90s. That's the Australian, but we've grown from 18 million to 27 million since the mid-90s. And that, all of those people need water. And so all of those people need the, the benefits that agriculture provides. And so so with a different spike in population, that I means, you know, and what misses out is the environment. There's no way around it. That's, that's how it works unless you plan better and make it equitable, as you say. That's the key word is equitable.
0: Equitable. Now, speaking of extreme events, cut <laughs> to this year. So... We obviously had catastrophic bushfires at the beginning of 2020, and we've had horrendous bushfires before, you know, and comparatively, this isn't necessarily the only catastrophic bushfires we've had, but uh, they were widespread. So, you know, when we think of fires, we think of property destruction, and I think of threats to life and smoke in the air and all of that sort of thing, but Lee... It can be equally catastrophic for our waterways, is that right? I mean, the ash that is produced from fire, once that gets into the water, that's a problem?
1: It's a massive problem. And it was a massive problem this year. It's, uh, I think the first, well, we saw several areas this year where the, where the bushfires went through and there was ash and charcoal and silt just across the landscape. You, you see a landscape that's just, trees with no leaves, with no understory, all the grass is burnt out, all of the little trees are burnt out, it's just there. And basically what that provides is, it's just like when it rains, there's nothing to soak up the rain, it just washes straight down into the waterways, you get this massive influx of nutrients, because all of this charcoal is basically just carbon, so you're loading the waterway with carbon. Mm. And then when that happens in the middle of summer, when the water temperatures are warm, it provides this amazing breeding ground for bacteria and what happens is when the bacteria grow it sucks out all of the oxygen because the bacteria need oxygen to to i guess reproduce and you can see oxygen levels drop really quickly and we saw that in quite a few river systems after there was rain events the river basically went black and the oxygen went to zero so that was that was the first problem the second problem was where not only did the ash go in and the oxygen go to zero a lot of the rivers washed that much silt into the water that we saw rivers with the consistency of cake mix. It was basically sludge and mud and all of this ash that was going down the rivers. And and I was talking to a group of people who were trying to rescue some threatened species um, near Tumbarumba, not far here in Albury, and they turned up at the site to rescue these Macquarie Perch and just as they were there, they could see that there was a the pool of water, which was normal. This wall of ash and mud just come charging through and they showed me the video footage that they took and it was just unbelievable. It was, it was like you see on those YouTube videos where you just see this big wall of flood water go through. But it wasn't flood water, it was flood Flood mud, if that's flood a word.
0: Ash. It's like a mud slide, but an ash it slide into the water. absolutely waterway.
1: was. It absolutely was, and it just covered everything. It covered all of the rocky habitat for the fish. It covered all of the snags, and it covered all of the fish. So the fish were just floating to the surface, because imagine you filled your fish tank up at home with mud. No fish would be able to swim around in it. So, so these fish just basically asphyxiated and, and died. And so that happened in that happened in the Mackay River on the central mm-hmm. coast, so that that was a pretty horrible situation but it also happened here in Manus Creek and the upper Murray where we saw that, that happen that happened down in the Tambo River down in, um, in Victoria down in, in East Gippsland so, so there were several areas where just this sludge just went through and wiped out the fish and that took out lots of Murray cod lots of native fish, lots of bass, lots of eels you know stacks of fish died. And what
0: When you see this happening around you, and particularly being in your line of work, how do you feel when you see that? Do you feel as though, oh my goodness, this is another thing and it's a disaster? Or do you look at those situations and think to yourself, well, if we had done X, Y, Z, we would have been prepared for this because we know this happens and we could have mitigated the damage of this? Well,
1: you kind of do a bit of both. but I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And if you had have said that this year we'd have another year of drought, then followed by bushfires, then followed by a virus. I mean, who would have believed you? So it's really hard to plan for those extreme situations. Mm-hmm. So, but in hindsight, I guess what you can do is, you know, they always say you're always as strong as your weakest link. And what, and in the fish world, what's your weakest link? Mm-hmm. That's threatened species. Mm-hmm. And so, what you can do is that some of those species that you think are at risk, you could have risk management plans in place. You could have rescues in place. You could have all that scopes just in case it does happen. And we didn't have that we were caught really really unprepared this year and there was a lot of people who were going down the rivers to rescue fish with no real plan no real long-term plan for what you do with the fish if you rescue them sometimes the teams got there too late and they couldn't do anything and it was just it was really disorganized and people were just reacting as crises come up so Mm. i guess what you can do is you can say well, we know this is going to happen again because the climate has changed, and so how could we do it better next time around? Mm. So yeah.
0: Well, this is the thing too. I think it's so difficult in a way to. I don't know if this is something that affects you, and you're a scientist, so possibly not. You're probably a lot more logical than I am. But I, I look at all of these constant issues and disasters that we're exposed to, and now we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Um, So, you know, we're recording in isolation over the phone and all that sort of thing and we're all working separately and trying not to touch each other, which is just like living in this bizarre dystopian future that's happening now. How do we, you know, how do we still focus on the environment and these particular issues and things that I guess the average person may not think about, which is threatened fish species, when things like COVID seems to usurp all of these other considerations you know, how do we, I guess, get through this and then keep these other very particular issues that we still need to work on top of mind?
1: When it comes to fish, there's, there's, there can be a canary in a coal mine. So, mm. so when fish go belly up, our water is not is not in very good condition. Mm. So poor water quality equals fish kills. We know that that's been happening for years. But water is life and water is what people need. And I remember when I was at high school, uh, when I was at school, And the primary school and high school, I remember the teacher. I'll never forget my grade five teacher. He got up and gave this talk one day and he said, future wars aren't going to be fought over territories. Future wars are going to be fought over water because the population will get too much and we won't have enough water to go around. And I thought he was crazy. And it wasn't until the last couple of years that I I actually cast my mind back to his talk and I thought he was right and it's already starting. I mean, you might not have realised it, but there's already a war between the northern basin and the southern basin there's there's already people talking about well why should they get more water than we get water if i look overseas i see uh if i do a lot of work in the mekong and the the countries which are downstream in the mekong vietnam cambodia and laos are impacted by what happens in china they're the upstream countries if you go to if you go to the indus river basin which is pakistan and india pakistan is completely impacted by what happens in India and so the water wars are already there and they're already starting and so you turn around and you say what is the one thing that people need to live it's good quality water and if you can maintain good quality water you're going to by default have good fish communities mm-hmm. if you've got fish communities that are floating upside down and dying you don't have good quality water. And that's what happened last year in Menindee. And the Menindee people, and this is part of the story that wasn't told that widely, Mm. they had no tap water, they had no drinking water, they were asked to sign waivers just because the local council couldn't provide good quality drinking water. They had bottled water shipped in every week from Sydney, so that they had water. I mean, that's what the future looks like. And and you can turn around and say it's just a fish issue. It's not really a fish issue because we all live in the environment and we're dependent on a healthy environment for things. And and the future for us, if we don't protect the fish and we don't protect our water qualities, is we'll have bad quality water. And we will move slowly and slowly further towards that water war scenario and that's what will happen if we don't get our water management
0: right lee thank you Uh, you've given me so much to think about i've so enjoyed our chat today i've learned a lot not only about fish but about the interconnectedness of all of us in this ecosystem and how we need to think about these things going forward. Um, I really hope that we can get the distribution and sharing of our resources right and by right I mean fair and equitable. I'm concerned because I feel it's a very political situation you know not only within Australia but beyond Australia and beyond uh, national borders as you've just very eloquently pointed out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking with Charles Sturt Stories. And Lee, I hope we can have another chat to you again.
1: Look forward to it, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.